It's inevitable that your business is going to expand more quickly than your internal team does. And so inevitably, you're going to need freelancers, contractors, strategic partners to help you service particular projects or clients. And so you need to be thinking about the documents and agreements that will solidify those relationships and protect all the parties, not only because you want to protect the agency, but because if you've made a promise to the client in your contract with them, it really needs to be reflected in your agreement with these other parties. Is your current success putting a lot of demands on you? If you're good at what you do, and you are, then everyone wants you. But that's no way to scale. If you're delivering spectacular results, you should be commanding higher fees, working with only the best clients. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO Podcast, where world-class agency owners and consultants learn how to fully monetize their expertise and scale profits by doing less. Here's your host, Mandy Ellison. Today on the podcast, I have Sharon Torek from Torek Law and LegalAndCreative.com. So they work with marketing agencies, agencies in general, to be able to get the legal structures in place so that they can actually scale and protect their assets. So I wanted to have Sharon on today because there's a number of different things that get in the the way of the CEO letting go in the day-to-day because they get tied into contracts and making decisions on things. And Sharon's going to be talking about how you can really put systems together for making legal decisions in the business, which allow you to be able to step back. So we talk about master service agreements, and we're talking about the things that you need to have in your legal service agreement. And I definitely learned some things on this interview, and and they have some things that apply specifically to agencies. So listen in, enjoy this episode, and I hope you get a lot out of it. Welcome to the show, Sharon. It's nice to have you on today. Thanks, Mandy. I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So I know that at Torque Law, you guys work primarily with agencies. So what kind of agencies do you work with? We work with marketing, advertising, digital, and communications firms across the U.S. They tend to be small and mid in size, independently owned, typically run by their owner founders or maybe a small management team. We focus really in one of three buckets for them. The first is intellectual property matters. Every agency is an IP creator, whether they realize it every day or not. They're business transactions, and that means a lot of work helping them enter into solid agreements with their clients, with their freelancers, with their strategic partners, and then marketing regulation compliance so that when they are putting campaigns together, or executing strategies for their clients that any marketing-specific legal regulations that are implicated get addressed, and we help them navigate those issues as well. So you're working with a lot of digital-based marketing agencies. What are some of the, as you mentioned, that these are some of the areas that you work around in the IP and the business transactions, I'm assuming contracts and things, and some regulation compliance. So what are some of the main issues that you're seeing as the main challenges that agencies really need to be aware of from the legal side? You know, I think that an agency, you know, whether you're just getting on your scaling journey or whether you are in the midst of it, it all comes down frequently to a lot of the same fundamentals. And I can tell you that basically the most frequently requested 
answers that we are sought out for deal primarily with the agency client contract scenario. That never seems to die down. And I think one of the main reasons for that is as you grow, as you either develop a niche and scale or as you get bigger as an agency generally, you tend to be pitching for, seeking out, or being sought out by larger and larger potential clients. And therefore, the contract issues get more and more complicated, or it's more likely that you're going to have to navigate negotiating the client's contract off of their paper. So for that reason, agency client contract negotiations and having the right toolkit in your agency to deal with client contract negotiations never sort of dies in importance. It only gets more and more crucial as the numbers get bigger and bigger. So I would say that's the most frequently asked question we get and the reason that our inbox gets the fullest. And I would say beyond that, we spend a lot of time helping agencies understand and plan for the fact that the intellectual property they create is not only a bargaining chip in the agency client contract negotiation, but you're also creating assets for yourself as an agency. You need to be strategic about the way you protect them and about the way you plan and organize them so that you can use them to monetize and create separate revenue streams or become more efficient and therefore increase your profit margin as you're serving clients over time. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you're seeing with the contract negotiation thing that agencies need to be aware of? First of all, this is just a fact of life. Always in a hurry to get that contract done because it's a hurdle or it's a barrier between them and that first retainer check or starting that work that they want to start and that their teams are really excited about. So I would say the biggest impediment is not planning for the contract development and negotiation and not treating it as part of the the whole client experience in the first place. And so therefore it tends to be something you want to get through, get past, get over as quickly as possible. And the challenge there is you miss a lot of opportunities. I think agencies are pretty good at thinking about and documenting kind of what I call the three Ds, you know, the dollars and the deliverables and the deadlines. Those are easier things to think about in the early days of working with a client or in pitching a prospective client. They're sort of easier to get down on paper. If they're easier to concept. And really, those are the things that should end up in your statement of work. They really don't belong even in your master service agreement or your professional services agreement. And so I think that's one of the biggest first challenges is the agency is so excited about the opportunity that they're thinking about the work, they're thinking about the money, they're thinking about the financial risks. There are really so many other things that the master service agreement lives to protect the agency And those are the things that are not as sexy as the other details when you're starting a new relationship. And so they're also the things that are most likely to slow you down, particularly if you're negotiating with an enterprise size client, because they will have very specific ideas about what their standards and practices are. So you have to be an advocate or you have to have an advocate in order to get past some of those things to get a solid and fair and truly lucrative agreement in place. You know, I'll give you a great example of that. It's one thing to meet in the middle about payment terms. Maybe you wanted 30, maybe they wanted 90, and you ended up at 45 if you're lucky, or maybe 60, whatever, in the middle. 
It's another thing to think about what does a payment term actually trigger, for example. You might think as an agency, well, it's when we send the invoice. They might think as a client, it's when we approve that invoice, which could be two, three, or four weeks after they get the invoice. It also could be after they resolve any objections they have to something that's in your bill. So this is all stuff that you use the contract language to clarify so that everybody understands what a 45-day payment term really means, for example. Another area where you might be perfectly fine as an agency with the client owning the rights to all the final deliverable work. You might not be so fine about them owning some of your proprietary processes or thought leadership that ends up embedded in that work. And you also don't want them to own the work before you get paid for it. Both of those scenarios are things that need to be addressed in the contract. So these are just examples of things that if you think them out an additional step or two or three, help you understand why it's important to have some thoughtfulness around the process of contracting with your clients. And the good news is if you have some good upfront process and systems in place, and Mandy, I know this, this is what you live and breathe every day is helping businesses systematize so that the owner's free to go off and do the things that they're best at doing or want to do. If you do those things with respect to your legal processes, they don't have to create friction later on. You have a repeatable, systematic way of looking at entering into a new client relationship so that even if you end up signing the client's version of a contract, you will have your own MSA template as a benchmarking tool, as a negotiation guide for coming up with an agreement that's fair to the agency and that the client feels good about. Okay. I have a couple of questions now. This brings up a few questions for me. One of the things is, what should be in that master service agreement? As agencies, they're starting to scale, they get better and better results, and they start going after the bigger and bigger fish. And I think you kind Mm -hmm. of touched on that a little bit, that going and selling to the bigger fish, it gets more complicated. So now there's this different process for you to navigate through on the legal side. So from that context, there's more to that. That's a pretty loaded question, I think. Specifically, what are the things that you need to have in a good master service agreement so you don't look stupid when you're going to the next level client, just to put it that way? That's a great question. And I think there are a few basic things to think about that you should always be benchmarking in the agreement, whether you wrote it or whether the client wrote it. The first is you want to make sure that the term is expressed well. Are you going to time limit it? And what's the time limit going to be? Is it in your interest to have a longer term or is it in your interest to treat this more as dating versus long-term marriage and have a shorter term? Also, how are you going to get out of the agreement if it's not working? Term and termination. That's necessary real estate that you need to cover in the master service agreement. Secondly, I am an IP advocate for agencies. I came up as an IP lawyer before I ever worked in marketing or with agencies, and so I'm passionate about protecting it. And so that informs some of the way I look at this. But also, if when you look at the dollars and cents of it, you want to make sure that your IP language, your IP ownership and transfer language in the master service agreement ensures that the rights to the work that you do for the client don't get assigned until you've been paid as an agency. You also want to make certain that you've carved out your retention of the intellectual property and any of the work that's your proprietary stuff, right, that makes it into the deliverable. That's yours to keep. 
it's carved out, that never transfers to the client. They're licensing it or borrowing it from you, in essence. And then the third thing that a, a lot of clients, a lot of agencies think about is really a publicity right and an intellectual property right, and that is holding back the ability to display some of the work that you do or create case study examples or even use the name or logo of a client for your own promotional purposes as an agency. That's really reserving out an IP right as well. Sometimes it's dealt with in the IP language, which is how I prefer to deal with it. Sometimes there's a separate publicity section of the MSA. So intellectual property stuff. Liability and indemnification. So who will be responsible to whom for what? And what limits will there be on that liability? A lot of times you will see in well-constructed MSAs, limitations on the party's liability to each other. A lot of times it's couched in terms of what the financial impact of the agreement is. For example, the liability is capped at 1x of the amount of revenue that the agency derives from the agreement, as an example. So liability and identification. And then fourth, and I'm just going to give you four. There are many others. But fourth, I would say exclusivity and Restrictive covenants are very important to cover in the master service agreement. We are seeing a rise in asks and requests for category exclusivity, industry exclusivity from clients to agencies. So my baseline recommendation is I don't want to see that in an agreement, my client's behalf as an agency. But if it's going to be in there, there are tactics you can use to limit its scope as much as possible. And then also in this age of talent being so tricky to attract, retain, non-solicitation of each other's talent because sometimes your best team member is extremely attractive once they become familiar with or even embedded in the client's business and the client, you know, might like to have access to that talent on a full-time basis. So those things, those fair competition provisions are important. So I would say generally those four categories are critical. And there are some other things that, you know, the fill in the margins around things, but those are must-haves. And obviously, they get more complex as the size of the contract gets large or the clients get bigger. I think that's really great advice. I was definitely taking notes on there. I like that you talked about putting in the IP assignment mm-hmm. the ability to actually use the case studies. That mm-hmm. is a huge issue I see across agencies where They're doing this work for clients. They're partnering with them. They're generating, you know, could be millions of dollars of results. But then the client, not only will they not tell them, they won't tell them even the results, which I think is insane. Because how can you actually do work without a feedback loop, without actually knowing if it's working or not? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, they won't let them actually use them as a case study. And when I look at that, I'm saying, move on. You find Mm -hmm. clients, unless they're gigantic whales, they're going to be paying you a ton of money to compensate for that you really need to be able to see that your work is working and to know the results. Because and I want to ask you this too, actually. So how do you feel about using case studies for more of an anonymous basis? Uh, You can talk about a company that has these characteristics, but you can't actually tell the company which company it is and be able to tell the case studies from that perspective without disclosing who they are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible to do it well. I think you sit on the fence of will you have to eliminate so much information from the case study that it won't be a good enough illustration of what you can actually do or achieve. 
So I'd like to see it negotiated, included in the agreement as a permissible activity, but we have had agency clients who have reached out to us and said our our client contacted us. They're super angry because we've created this very flattering case study about what we did for them, and it's on our website, and we don't specifically have permission in our contract to do that, and they're mad. You're kind of stuck at that point, right? So think about a few steps. What would you want to do, say, or share with the world about the results you achieve or the brands that you work with with your next client or the prospect after that? And sort of back that into your thinking about the publicity rights clause or IP rights clause in your contract. I think there's some mutuality you have to take into account, too. You've got to assure the client that we're not going to disclose anything that's proprietary to you, anything that's confidential to you. If you want us to make it anonymous, we'll just identify an industry or a category. But we've got to have the ability to sort this is how we do business development by showing what we can do and the results that we can achieve for prospective clients. Unless you want to be, as you said, Mandy, our only client and pay our whole month for the year, then we do need some other business. And so one of the ways we do that is to talk about what we've done for clients like you. That's a really good point, too. And If all of your marketing is based on case studies, then they're going to expect that it will not be quite as unreasonable. But actually, unfortunately, I see a lot of agencies, their websites have hardly any case studies on it. And even when they do, they're so weak and watered down that they don't actually even tell the story about the work that they can do. So anyway, those are great things to consider around what to include in the master service agreement. Is there anything Mm -hmm. else to take into consideration as you are taking that next shift and you're moving into the next level of scale in the business. Yeah. I think there are some other things to think about as you're growing as an agency. It's inevitable, at least in most of the agency growth stories that we see at my firm, it's inevitable that your business is going to expand more quickly than your internal team does. And so inevitably you're going to need freelancers, contractors, strategic partners to help you service particular projects or clients. And so, You need to be thinking about the documents and agreements that will solidify those relationships and protect all the parties, not only because you want to protect the agency, but because if you've made a promise to the client in your contract with them, it really needs to be reflected in your agreement with these other parties. Mm -hmm. And so having a well-drafted independent contractor agreement in your toolkit becomes important as you scale Having a well-written strategic alliance agreement template so that if you are engaging with, say, a partner agency who has a specialty that you don't and is going to white label something for you or actually work together with you with that client becomes important. Having a good strategic vendor agreement. So the toolkit gets a little bigger and a little more complete. And then I would say along with that, You need to get more systematic about training your team regarding your legal infrastructure. And by that, I mean, make it a point of being purposeful about training your account team, for example, what your master service agreement says, what the provisions mean, and why they're there so that they can explain it if they're ever asked to by a client. You know, don't put them in the position of just pointing to legal and saying, I don't know why it's in there. We just have to get it signed. And help your creative team understand, for example, with regular training, what some of the legal issues are that they need to be aware of or what some of the contractual restrictions 
and your client relationship are that they need to be aware of. So adding the training in addition to the legal toolkit becomes more important as you scale. And the need for strategic alliances, I think only we've just seen them grow over the last couple of years. I think part of it was related to the pandemic and people doing business differently and maybe taking on different kinds of work than was in their sweet spot. So they would team together. But we've seen a significant uptick in agency to agency collaborations over the last 18 to 24 months. Makes a lot of sense to what you're talking about with how important it is to train your team on the different legal aspects of it. Because this is an example of the high level pieces that get stuck in your head as a CEO and that you pulled in because your team is afraid to make the wrong decision, rightfully so. I mean, these decisions can have very big ramifications for the business that if they don't have the right information, they simply can't make the decision on. So that's a really great way to think about how you're standardizing that into all of your processes. And if you look at it from that perspective, it's really giving you a level of freedom to empower your team to be able to make higher level decisions without you. 100%. You know, I always say to our clients or whenever I'm speaking or presenting to agency owner groups, look, this is your biggest ally having a well-built legal infrastructure because it is going to reduce the friction significantly for you to have a system in place to say to your team, This is how we do it. This is what happens when we need to deviate from how we usually do it, because inevitably some business and some opportunities will come your way as an agency, whereas an owner, you'll have to make a decision or your leadership team will have to make a decision. Are we going to make an exception? Are we going to agree to exclusivity because the opportunity is just too great to say no, or they're throwing a ton of money at us, or this is a Hallmark client for us to have, no pun intended. Um, (laughs) So... You know, have the process and procedure in place for them to deviate from what's usually in place. It's, as you said, going to give your team members a feeling of liberty to know there's a roadmap here. There's a playbook for what happens here and there and there in the agency. It's already been thought about. It's already been vetted. And there is a clear trail to the answer or the individual from whom we need to seek permission to deviate from the typical answer. I see a lot of services businesses run into a a place where they are not advocating for the best terms. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why is I don't think they know what the best terms are. And one of the biggest terms that I really encourage our clients to advocate for is the payment terms. And Mm -hmm. I mean, as much as possible, getting paid ahead of work is not going to work in every agreement. But it's defining what the most ideal terms are and then looking at how do our offers need to look? How do we be able to sell this so that they're actually going to agree to these kind of terms because it's so lucrative, such an amazing offer to them that they really feel compelled to accept whatever terms that you have, I mean, within reason. There's a real balance here. And I've seen hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of accounts receivable just sitting there because They don't have a system and process for this is what we'll accept for our payment terms. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because they've never defined them. They've never defined what actual, what is ideal for us, which it sounds like that's part of the process that you guys do when you're working with agencies. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't pretend to tell an agency where their maximum profit lies in an agency. I think you have to, do the equivalent of your SKUs and figure out where are our margins the greatest, where is the likelihood of over-servicing the highest, so we need to work on that. What's easier for us to make 
the biggest amount of margin on? And where is it harder to make margin? And so should we work on the price? Because there's lots of ways to leave profit on the table, right? I mean, first is you're not pricing correctly. The second is the payment terms choke you on cash flow. And so you're in constantly in a churn situation where, you know, you don't have enough money to service the account. And then third, it's taking too long from start to finish to get the job done that earns you the money that you've negotiated. So those are not necessarily legal issues, but expressing the payment terms and et cetera in your statement of work, which is an integral part of the client agency relationship. I counsel agencies to put as much time and energy into their statement of work templates as they do into their MSA because Again, I think it's easy to get diverted and very boutique or bespoke about writing statements. These statements of work, and I've seen millions of versions of them working with as many agencies as we do. Some of them are works of art. My goodness. I mean, they look like a marketing document themselves. But by the time you're writing a statement of work, you should have already won the business. Be very close to winning the business. So you need to be thoughtful about, at that point, whether or not the financial aspects of the relationship are well-reflected and enabling of you to maximize the profit. And so as lawyers, we can certainly help you write the document the appropriate way to reflect your intentions. But that work, that exercise of doing your SKUs, of feeling, finding yeah. out where the money is, it's not sexy, it's not fun. And even we have to do it at my firm, right? But it's the way to ensure that you're maximizing your profit based upon the result you're creating for the client. I love what you shared though, though, those three things, the profit, the payment terms, and the total time that it takes from start to finish. And the reason why I like that is because we're talking about legal here, but Mm -hmm. if you don't look at the big picture context about how legal fits into the business, then you are not seeing the full big picture. That's one of the things that I have really respected about your approach is that it's very holistic. And that's what allows agency owners to look at you and say, okay, I want to go with their firm. They know exactly what they're doing because they're niche down. So I just want to acknowledge you for that. That's a really a great direction to take it. That's really kind of you. I appreciate it. We love working with agencies. I mean, I made a very strategic and purposeful decision to focus the firm on the agency segment because there really was nobody out there helping them who understood. There's a lot of great IP lawyers out there. There are a lot of great small business and entrepreneurship lawyers out there. But really, nobody who's talking to agencies on a day-to-day basis to understand where their money's actually coming from, what's actually worrying them about their businesses and their opportunities, and why they are so resistant to being proactive about legal. The more time you spend with them, the more you understand why they're resistant to it. It's not just as simple as because they don't want to write a check for that. It's There are a lot of factors It's a very creative industry. They don't like to be bogged down by obstructionism or detail, and that's a big part of it. Cost can be a part of it, especially the longer a negotiation goes on, the more it's going to cost you. And not only is it costing you in legal fees, but it's costing you because that faucet's not on yet in terms of the revenue from the client because nobody's paying anything until the contract signs. And, you know, we get all that because we've been talking to agencies for years. And so we understand it. And it's just a, I get to have a front row seat to the most amazing creativity by working with marketing agencies. And we get an opportunity to think about the most interesting legal issues 
by serving that audience. It's a privilege. And marketing and advertising change our culture. They change our economy for sure. And we're kind of right up there with them up in front. And so it's a lot of fun and it's an honor to work with them really. So the more I can learn about how they think, what's important to them, the better we can serve them. And that's what we're all about. And one of the things that I have seen that makes it melts away some of that resistance is running into some kind of legal issue. Mm-hmm. And then you realize how much stress it actually does cost you. Mm-hmm. So um what are some of those main top costly legal issues that mm-hmm. maybe you run across and and could potentially cost the company? Yeah. So one major category is not having sound practices in place. This is after you've signed the contract with the client. So it's unrelated to the contract negotiation per se, but it is not exercising enough due diligence in the creativity process when it comes to branding, for example, making sure trademarks are cleared, or when it comes to putting creative campaigns together, making sure copyright issues have been thought about and vetted through. And the reason that that can be costly is twofold. Obviously, when your clients inform that there's trademark infringement by their new brand or when they get the call or the email that there's a copyright infringement on the website because there's a photo there that they didn't grant rights for the client to use, et cetera, you're then in this position of clawback as an agency. You've already done the work. You've been paid for the work. The work's out there in the world. The client and you are either on to something else or you're not even in business together anymore. And so it is a lot of missed opportunity because you're going to be spending non-billable time addressing all of this after the fact. And it can be very pricey to negotiate your way out of these issues. And sometimes it even results in the work having to be clawed back and redone. I mean, if you have put a client in a position with a rebrand where they're in conflict with some other competing brand out there and you didn't know it because they didn't go through the due diligence process, they're going to have to rebrand. They're going to have to do the work all over again. And and that's one of the best results. Hopefully they're not going to have to pay damages for some sort of trademark infringement. Likewise, if there's an unauthorized photograph on a website that you developed for a client, somebody's paying something to the stock photography service. Maybe it'll be the client, but probably it's going to be the agency. And so that's money that nobody wanted to set fire to and probably not going to put your agency under, but it's still business interruption. It's an interruption to your cash flow, et cetera. So the kind of campaign and work-specific stuff, those are missteps that can cause the agency a lot of hassle. If you work in an area, if you focus in an area of marketing that has a lot of regulatory implications, let's use influencer marketing as an example. Influencer marketing is watched and regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. There are specific transparency and disclosure principles that need to be followed in an influencer campaign. There are certain fair advertising principles that need to be, for example, what you say about a product, what an influencer says about a product has to be true, it has to be verifiable, it can't be misleading, et cetera, et cetera. So if any of that goes wrong on your watch as an agency because you didn't have systems in place to make sure the influencer knew what the rules were, there's probably going to be some headaches there on the agency's part and some financial implication. 
And that could be true not only – that's just an example. Another example is digital marketing and data privacy rule regulation violations. That's definitely something that can come back to haunt the agency. So a lot of these can be mitigated or minimized by just doing some preparation in advance before the work is released out into the world. Got it. And have you seen instances where the contracts weren't solid enough and then as a result, they didn't get paid, they didn't get paid enough, Mm -hmm. or it allowed their client to jump ship, be able to get refunds? Have you seen any cases of that with the contracts just being too soft? I've seen examples of payment language in agreements be detrimental to agencies and maybe some of the following areas. There wasn't language that addressed what happens if the client pauses the project or doesn't timely provide approvals or feedback. And therefore, the agency has dedicated a particular headcount to servicing this account. And they're stuck because they're still in the middle of the contract, so they can't divert these people onto other business necessarily. And yet there's nothing to bill for. That scenario wasn't accounted for in the payment terms of the agreement. I've seen a couple of episodes of that. I've seen episodes of misunderstandings regarding when the time actually starts running for a bill to be due once it's sent to the client. And you and I talked about that a little bit earlier, but when does the time start ticking when you send it, when it's approved, when it, you know, so there are those dynamics to think about. I've seen examples of agencies who ultimately and unfortunately need to pursue clients for non-payment, but they don't have attorney fee recovery or collection cost recovery provisions in their agreement. So the money that they had to spend to chase after the money they've already earned was at their own expense, because if you don't have that language in your agreement, no court's going to reimburse you for your attorney's fees. So those are a few examples. And these are most frequently things that are not anticipated at the early stage because everybody is happy to be in business together and can't foresee a situation where they might be at odds with one another. So the more patterns you see, and that's where we have the benefit of having seen so many deals and so many that we see patterns where an agency might only see its own patterns. We see patterns overall. So talking to your fellow agency owners, talking to people like you, Mandy, who work with a lot of agencies and see the back ends of their businesses is helpful in getting as much context as you can to think about the scenarios you might be encountering and how they could impact your ability to collect your money and make sure those are addressed in your documents. That's a really good point you're talking about with having to pursue clients for non-payment. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I've seen that they would deal with before they even talk to someone like you is having weak language that they look at the contract and say, well, you know, we're not even going to go after this because this isn't even strong enough for us to work with. Mm-hmm. So you could be missing out on tens of thousands of dollars of profit, maybe even hundreds of thousands in some cases, because your contract isn't such that you're even going to enforce it because there's not much to enforce. Yeah. I think that, if, look, if you've done the work, my view of it is that unless the work is somehow unacceptable to the client or you didn't fulfill your end of the obligation as an agency, which you have to be honest with yourself about whether or not, you know, you actually hit the mark. And if you think you did, then your contract language might not be, you know, spiffy, if you will. 
but you should still get paid for that work. And there's some intermediate steps and escalations that you can make before you bring legal into the mix to increasingly put pressure. It helps if you still owe them additional deliverables because then that's a part of the conversation. But if you don't and you've done the work and the work is compliant and meets your commitments, then you should be paid for it. And the fact that your contract might be poorly drafted on the point shouldn't stop you from being able to be paid the amount that they agreed to pay you for the service and work that you provided. So we don't love to do collection work at my firm. Quite candidly, we do very little of it. We find that it's most helpful actually to coach the agency owner behind the scenes to help them craft their demands to the client by pointing out maybe arguments that they hadn't thought to make or provisions in the agreement that was signed that they hadn't thought to refer to. And hopefully, and in most cases, it'll get resolved at that level. There's usually very little, by the time it escalates to the point where only option you have left is to take legal recourse, there's usually not a lot of good results to be had in those situations. So I would say stay on top of your bills, have a process built in place. And I'm sure you teach this all the time and better than I'm about to describe it. But what happens after 15 days? What happens after 30 days? Codify this, write it out, make it an internal process and train on it. Like we were speaking about earlier, at what point do we send a demand letter? Here's a template for a demand letter. At what point do we tell them this is our final attempt and we're going to escalate it? Here's a template for that. Have your toolkit ready. I love that. And that's also another example of how you can keep the CEO and top management out of some of the the small day-to-day things that should just be happening. Absolutely. So I love that. That's great advice. And the other thing, too, is like you're going to have a better, more friendly negotiation. It's going to keep the relationship that will be able to keep you know, the making referrals. If you can actually just manage it in a human way, sending mm-hmm. them off to your lawyer is, is like like you're saying, the very last resort that you yeah. want. You're going to be unhappy with the result because you're going to pay the lawyer to recover only a fraction of what is owed to you anyway. And you're going to say in the beginning, I'd rather give you the money than have them keep our work without paying. And you don't mean it. I love you agency owners, but you don't really mean it. You don't really want to pay legal for that. So do what you can to kick that can as far as you can and have some other things in your toolkit that you can do and say and send to keep things moving along. Yeah. It's like really when you're doing that, what ends up happening is, is that you move from a human to human conversation to one where now it's just egos battling. It's a lose lose situation. Yeah. I agree. So I love that you said that. So. Sharon, how can people reach out to you and your firm? Yeah, I appreciate it. So we're at legalandcreative.com. A lot of helpful articles there on agency-specific legal issues. Email Sharon at legalandcreative.com. I am quite active on LinkedIn, so always feel free to reach out to me there. And I'm pretty easy to find and love talking to agency owners and finding out what's on their mind. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this brilliant advice sharing this really a solid interview. So thank you so much for sharing all your brilliance. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all that you do for agency owners as well, Mandy. Thanks, Sharon.